When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast episode contains descriptions of racist attitudes and actions. It also contains references to the forced removal of Indigenous children, sexual violence and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Apologies that this second instalment of the first dismissal is a little later than promised. The COVID's still slowing me down a bit. Just before I start, I need to make a few corrections to annoying mistakes I picked up in part one. Norman Brown, who was killed at Rothbury, was 29 years old, not a teenager, as I said. Billy Hughes took conscription to referendum in 1916 and 1917, rather than twice in 1916. Jack Lang was repudiating the Premier's plan and proposing the Lang plan by March of 1931, rather than November 1931, though that was when his opposition was in full swing. So, sorry about those errors. A big shout-out to new Patreon supporters, Jeremy Feglin and Trent McKinnon. And a big shout-out too to great mate Dan Crichton. Thanks for your friendship and support and hope to have a beer soon. In addition to being a little later than I hoped, this Robert Beardsmore part of the first dismissal is going to be longer than I anticipated. Writing part two, I realised the episode was going to run more than two hours. Because understanding Robert Beardsmore in a balanced way depends on important detail and context, I didn't want to lose too much. So I'm going to split part two into parts A and B. Trust me when I say it'll take us into some forgotten but very interesting parts of our national history. Part B will be with you as soon as possible. Okay, on with the deep dive. It's Wednesday the 11th of May 1932 and New South Wales is in chaos. State Labor Premier Jack Lang and United Australia Party Prime Minister Joe Lyons are in a standoff. While Lang has ordered New South Wales public servants to deposit state revenues into the Treasury, 
Lyons has decreed they must be paid into the Commonwealth Bank so federal authorities will have access to them. The Prime Minister wants the money to pay New South Wales's debts. The Premier needs the cash to keep his state afloat. Veteran public servant Robert Beardsmore, Chief Accountant of the Lands Department, has received the two conflicting directives. Which one should he obey? The State Government's memo, originally issued last month, has secretly been of such concern to New South Wales Governor Sir Philip Game that he's asked London for advice about its legality and what he should do. He's still awaiting an answer after more than two weeks. The Commonwealth Government has just days ago issued a Gazette proclamation that its directive must be obeyed. And in response, just yesterday, the State Government has sent out a second memo saying, follow its orders. Faced with this, Robert Beardsmore writes a letter to his boss, New South Wales Lands Minister John Tully. Beardsmore sets out the contradictory advices, making the problem clear. His letter ends with this, quote, Placed in a very difficult position, in which loyalty to the state conflicts with my obligation to obey the law. My clear duty, as I conceive it, is to obey the law and pay any monies of the nature referred to in the manner directed by the proclamation. Robert Beardsmore instructs his cashier to pay revenues into the Commonwealth Bank. His boss, Mr Tully, countermands this order. The next morning, Beardsmore tries again, and again he's countermanded. Beardsmore's told it would be best if he took leave. He responds that he doesn't want to take leave. Mr Tully tells him he has to take time off. Indefinitely. Beardsmore asks for it in writing, and he gets it. Mr Tully is to claim his intention is benevolent, that he wants to take a valuable public servant out of the firing line. But Robert Beardsmore doesn't see it this way. He sees himself as being punished for obeying the law. What would otherwise be a minor departmental difference of opinion within hours becomes a huge problem. The Sydney Morning Herald and the Daily Telegraph have the story that afternoon and they're going to print with it the next morning. Sir Philip Game knows what's happened and now his hand's forced. He writes a letter to Jack Lang asking for confirmation the Premier sent the most recent memo. Receiving a copy from the Premier, the Governor replies with a second letter that says, quote, I feel it is my bounden duty to remind you at once that you derive your authority from His Majesty through me and that I cannot possibly allow the Crown to be placed in the position of breaking the law. Lang has to prove that his order is legal, or he must withdraw the memo immediately. The Governor finishes with, I must ask for a definite reply by 11am tomorrow, 13th May. The time bomb is ticking. I'm Michael Adams and this is part 2A of The First Dismissal, the public servant who brought down the Premier. The chain of events you've just heard were the trigger for Jack Lang's dismissal. But was Robert Beardsmore, as he wrote, quote, placed in a very difficult position? Was he, as has been subsequently claimed, just a neutral public servant, reluctantly doing his duty? While forgotten now, Beardsmore was in 1932 far from some obscure suit toiling away in the back office as he had done his whole life. As I said in part one, he's more like the Forrest Gump of Australian history. He was at ground zero for the legal architecture that created the Aboriginal stolen generations. He was there for Australia's first war victory, its first military scandal, and its most horrific defeat.
He was there when returned soldiers were betrayed. He was there when miners were attacked at Rothbury. And Robert Beardsmore was there for all of these before Jack Lang's dismissal. And after 1932, he was instrumental in the downfall of another state premier. By exploring Beardsmore's background and how he acted during these events, I think we get a better sense of the man. And I think we're also better able to answer the question, did he take sides when it came to Jack Lang in May 1932? As I said in part one, I believe that if he wasn't officially a member of the New Guard, he was at least entirely in sympathy with their aims. I believe he'd been at odds with Labour and leftists for at least 20 years, and possibly all the way back to the late 1890s. Of course, there was nothing wrong or illegal with any of that, but it also didn't mean he was neutral. In the rest of this episode, I've gone into a lot of detail, so you can make up your own mind. Robert Henry Beardsmore was born on the 12th of August 1873 in Sydney which made him a little more than three years older than Jack Lang. As found at Ancestry.com.au, Robert was the fourth child born to English immigrants William and Sarah. The couple was to have another surviving son. Like Lang's father, Robert's dad William was working class, a carpenter. With five kids, the Beardsmores were to be a smaller family than the Langs, but this was in part due to tragedy. A daughter born in 1878 died at the age of two, and in 1881, Sarah had stillborn twin daughters. While the Beardsmore's eldest son, Frederick, was to be a carpenter like his dad, young Robert was destined for a more academic and white-collar life. He was a book-smart young lad, and in July 1886, he passed the entrance exam for Sydney Boys High. There, he appeared to be a good, if not great, student. Robert's report card in 1887 was all B's except for an A in geometry, but he really excelled at debating. The topics young Robert had to thrash out held up a mirror to Australia's concerns as it approached federation. He argued questions like, should the Chinese be excluded from Australia? And should capital punishment be abolished? In July 1890, Robert joined the public service. This was the start of a career that would span half a century. In 1891, he also enrolled in a BA at Sydney Uni. In the years that followed, he improved his mind with the study of English, Latin, French chemistry, mathematics, logic, philosophy and history. In December 1891, Robert was appointed as a clerk with the Postmaster General's office. Now nearly 20, he stood 5'8". He was solidly built with light brown hair. He had squarish features and small eyes. When he smiled for the camera, he looked a little self-satisfied, but he was handsome in a hail-fellow, well-met kind of way. Robert Beardsmore was nothing if not busy. He completed his BA in March 1895. Three months later, he joined New South Wales's Citizen Military Forces, appointed as a second lieutenant to the 2nd Australian Infantry Regiment. During his studies, Robert had continued debating, and he remained involved after graduation. In May 1896, a topic now perhaps close to his heart was whether a commission to control the public service would be a good thing. The debate's chairman was Thomas Bavin. Bavin was then studying law on his way to becoming leader of the Nationalists in 1920. He was to defeat Jack Lang in 1927 and become New South Wales Premier and Treasurer. 
Bavin was responsible for sending in the Scabs, Bashakops and Robert Beardsmore to Rothbury at the end of that decade. By the time that happened, he and Beardsmore had known each other for more than three decades. By contrast, in 1896, Jack Lang was into Labour politics and hanging out with radicals like Henry Lawson at McNamara's bookshop. Both young men were undergoing formative political experiences at the same time, though at opposing ends of the ideological spectrum. In 1896, Beardsmore was on a public service salary of £160. He'd also become quite a good marksman. In 1897, he ranked in the top 20 in a competition held by the 2nd Regiment's Rifle Club. In September the following year, Beardsmore, by then promoted to 1st Lieutenant, moved temporarily to the Public Service Board before taking a permanent role as a communications clerk with the Inspector General of Police. It'd be this job that would soon give him his first lasting influence on Australian history. In the meantime, Outside of his work and his military training, Beardsmore was involved with the mock parliament run by the Debating Society's Union. This organisation of young intellectuals from both sides of politics played at being the New South Wales Colonial Chamber. They read and debated the same bills as their real-world counterparts, and they formed governments that were then toppled to become the opposition. In Robert Beardsmore's youthful allegiances, we see he was already on the conservative side of things. In July 1899, when a Labour-leaning union government was defeated, a new ministry was formed by a law student named John Hammond. He'd be play-acting Premier and Colonial Secretary. Two of his most important appointments were John McLaren as his Treasurer and Robert Beardsmore as Secretary of the Lands Department. So, John Hammond, Premier of this crash conservative colonial government, Well, in real life, he was the son of a Legislative Council member, who was also Mayor of Ashfield. John Hammond would go on to be a King's Counsel, Acting Supreme Court Judge, and, like his father, the Mayor of Ashfield. He was a dyed-in-the-wool Conservative. In 1929, for instance, Hammond was elected to the Nationalist Council at the same meeting that re-elected Thomas Bavin unopposed as party leader. During the intervening years, Robert Beardsmore and John Hammond appeared to have remained in the same circles through rifle shooting at competitions. Meanwhile, the play-acting Union Parliament's treasurer, John McLaren, would eventually be Sir John McLaren. He'd be a high-ranking public servant and in 1929 was appointed by Nationalist Prime Minister Stanley Bruce as Secretary to the Prime Minister's Department. John McLaren was also a lieutenant in the 2nd Regiment, so he and Beardsmore were brothers-in-arms. Being brothers-in-arms took on new meaning in Australia when the colonial government sent volunteer soldiers to fight in the Boer War in South Africa in 1899. For a time, Robert Beardsmore was considered for active service, but this didn't eventuate. Instead, he was made acting adjutant, that is, administrator, for the 2nd Australian Infantry Regiment. This was an important position, and over the next two years, he'd organised much in terms of training, supplying and moving troops. He sent soldiers off, and he welcomed them back from South Africa. One of the Boer War's heroes was William Holmes, who was also a senior New South Wales public servant. We get a good thumbnail of this man at this time from his Australian Dictionary of Biography entry. Quote, 
Australian newspapers praised his daring and courage. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Order, mentioned in dispatches and promoted Brevet Lieutenant Colonel. Wounded at Diamond Hill in June 1900, he was invalided home in August and led the returned soldiers in the Federation procession in Sydney in January 1901. Also in 1901, Colonel Holmes was elected to the Council of the National Rifle Association. The importance of accurate marksmanship had been demonstrated in the Boer War, and rifle clubs would now play an increasing role in training civilian volunteers to shoot. This was considered a vital part of Australia's ability to defend itself and to answer any future call to arms from Mother England. Robert Beardsmore, by now a crack shot who won competitions, was elected to the National Rifle Association's Council in 1903. Two years earlier, in February 1901, Robert had married Ethel Clack, daughter of a wealthy Summerhill draper. They lived in a house called Allura at 55 Albert Road in Strathfield. Lined with mansions, this was then one of Sydney's most prestigious neighbourhoods. As we heard in part one, Robert's home was four miles due east of where Jack Lang lived, in comfortable, if more modest, circumstances. Between November 1901 and November 1907, Robert and Ethel had three daughters. A son named Henry would be born in March of 1912. Incredibly enough, 50 years down the track, this boy Henry would clash with Jack Lang's son, Chris. More of that much later. Robert Beardsmore's first lasting effect on Australian history began in June of 1901. Still a clerk with the Inspector General of Police, he was appointed Secretary to the Aborigines Protection Board. The board had been established in 1883. Its aims as per the title, were to protect the Aboriginal people. This meant providing them with suitable land to live on. In other words, reserves segregated from white society. The board was to care for children and the sick. It was also to see that those who were fit were put into employment of some sort. How the board's goals were to be achieved wasn't stated when it was established, nor was it entirely clear who was going to do the work. But within weeks of its foundation in 1883, the board came under the control of the police, and that's where it would remain. Board members were unpaid. They were a mixture of politicians, philanthropists, progressives and Puritans. Sometimes a man would be several of these things at once. But whatever their good intentions, they were tainted by inherent racist attitudes, particularly the belief that full-blood Aborigines were doomed to die out. So the Aborigines Protection Board was going to do its best to help until this inevitable extinction. As for what was to be done with the half-castes, well, that was a trickier question, because they were increasing. While full-bloods commanded a measure of respect as true Aboriginal people, half-castes were regarded as the unfortunate lowest of the low. This was because they were the progeny of white men of bad character and black women who didn't know any better. One of the board's most influential members was George Ardell, the zealot from Parramatta. He was a Christian evangelist and a charity worker. He, like many board members, believed they could at least save the children. The best way to do this? Take them from their families. As historian Richard Egan writes in his 2021 study of the board, Power and Dysfunction, quote, 
what began as assistance and support changed to coercion, removal, control and segregation. Robert Beardsmore was not in his role as Secretary of the Aborigines Protection Board for his religious beliefs, charitable acts or his progressive values. He was there as an administrator, as an accountant, as a public servant. In February 1902, the New South Wales government decreed that Aboriginal children were to be excluded from any public school if any white parent objected to their presence for any reason. Beardsmore wrote on behalf of the board to express their, quote, extreme regret at this measure. A few years later, when such a situation arose and 26 Aboriginal children were kicked out of a public school, Beardsmore advocated successfully for the board to be able to erect a building on their station and pay the manager's wife a small allowance to teach these kids. But these were small mercies. Beardsmore believed in the board's mission creep, which saw increasing white control over every aspect of Aboriginal lives. One thorn in the board's side, going back decades, was the indigenous presence at La Perouse. Some of these people, of course, would have had grandparents and great-grandparents who'd seen Captain Cook and the Endeavour in 1770, and Arthur Phillip and the First Fleet 18 years later. Never mind that, the board wanted these indigenous people gone from La Perouse. They were too close to the White City. And worse, their camp attracted other inland Aboriginal people. On the 5th of June 1903, the Evening News reported, quote, at the meeting of the Aborigines Protection Board, the Secretary, Mr Beardsmore, brought under the notice of the members present the growing evil caused by the exceptional influx for some time past of Aborigines to Sydney. Reading articles in which Beardsmore is mentioned in relation to the board is to repeatedly see the headline, The Dying Race. Under this banner, the Sydney Morning Herald on the 29th of August 1903 provided an update on the La Perouse dilemma. The article is an example of the uncritical boosterism the board and its secretary enjoyed from the press. Quote, Mr Beardsmore yesterday explained that the board did the utmost with the funds at its disposal for the Aborigines of the state. At La Perouse, there are about 50 Aborigines. Of that number, only two men and two children were recognised as having full residential claims entitling them to rations. The others are from the country. All of this information, of course, had been supplied to the paper by Beardsmore. The article went on to decry the doggedness of those country Aborigines who stayed at La Perouse to work odd jobs and feed themselves by fishing. Parroting Beardsmore, the Sydney Morning Herald piece ended, quote, to put the matter in a nutshell, the board prefers them to stay away from the city and its suburbs, and while granting pitying help, has many difficulties to face owing to the inherent shiftlessness of this last remnant of the dying race. The La Perouse situation would drag on. In 1906, despite Robert Beardsmore's strongest efforts to convince the Aboriginal people to leave La Perouse for a more remote camp at Cornell, they wouldn't budge and the board had to back down. During these years, Beardsmore was frequently a subject in the Australian Star's column, Two Minute Chats. This took the format of a reporter grabbing a quick on-the-fly interview with important people. Back then, Beardsmore was indeed a chatty Cathy. In the 11th of May 1906 column, the reporter asked him, 
How is the business of the board proceeding? He replied, Oh, very well. This year we have been able to do more than usual in the way of providing huts in the country. Beardsmore talked of how they'd do better if food was cheaper, and how things went even better when Aborigines were industrious and took jobs on farms and stations. The reporter said, And do you find that they like work? He replied, They don't seem to mind it. Robert Beardsmore was across Aboriginal issues in New South Wales more than any other person. He was responsible for presenting the annual returns. These included the number of men, women and children, full-bloods and half-tasks across all of the settlements in the state. He was the one who collated the births and deaths to sustain the idea of the dying race. He also accounted for spending down to the last penny. In 1908, for instance, total medical spending on some 7,000 Aboriginal people on reserves scattered around New South Wales totaled £878. As a comparison, one middle-ranking public servant, Robert Beardsmore, that year enjoyed a salary of £250. The blithe attitude towards the Aboriginal people's health from those tasked with their so-called protection makes for abysmal reading. On the 12th of July, 1906, an evening news headline read, Aborigines and Consumption, Probable Extermination of the Race. This was an article about a meeting of the board that had concluded tuberculosis was likely going to lead to extinction. Just over a week later, Beardsmore had another one of his chats with the Australian star. Part of the conversation went this way. I understand, Mr Beardsmore, that full bloods are decreasing in number year by year. That is so. And will before long be extinct? Yes. Beardsmore also gave comment at this time to the Sunday Sun for a piece headlined, Our Black Brothers. Very much at home with his numbers, Beardsmore rattled off figures, which the Sun reporter related for readers, before paraphrasing him, quote, It is painfully apparent that it is merely a question of time, and of comparatively short time at that, when the Aborigines of New South Wales will have become as much memories of the past as are the natives of Tasmania. This article, again parroting Beardsmore, deflected any potential criticism of white Australia or of the board. Quote, The charge of deliberate neglect, still less that of deliberate cruelty towards those poor people, is one that has not lain against this community. The report made it clear that white Australia had done all it could and it had done nothing wrong. In fact, it may have done too much good. Quote, Yet, there may have been such a thing as killing them with kindness. The melancholy fact anyhow remains that the efforts to improve the blackfellow are exhibiting the constant spectacle of him being improved out of existence. Wherever the fault lies, assuredly, it does not lie with the poor blackfellow himself. He has no control over his own fate. So, the whites were killing them with kindness, and the blacks were too ignorant to care for themselves. Regrettable? Sure. But what could you do? As a measure of priorities, Robert Beardsmore at this time was more often in the newspapers for his prowess as a marksman than in his role as Secretary to the Aborigines Protection Board. A highlight of his shooting career came in November of 1906, 4,000 troops put on a brilliant spectacle when they held a review in Centennial Park for the King's birthday. A massive crowd watched a magnificent march past, after which the governor presented Robert Beardsmore with a trophy cup for shooting. His military career continued apace. 
he was made captain in 1905 and became area officer for the Homebush Auburn district. At this point in Auburn, Jack Lang was making good money from real estate. He was also active in labour politics and progressive associations. One of his attempts at helping people was his establishment in 1906 of the Auburn Star Balcott, which was a cooperative building society to help poorer folks buy their own homes. While Lang and Beardsmore's careers were going in very different directions, both were following honourable paths that provided for them and their families and helped secure Australia for white Australians. In 1907, Beardsmore, on behalf of the board, presented the Premier Joseph Carruthers with what was necessary in new legislation to protect the Aborigines. There were two critical issues. One was providing for a paid inspector whose job it would be to visit camps and report on conditions. The other issue was investing the board with the power to remove girls from the reserves. In November 1907, the Star Reporter asked Beardsmore about this new bill in one of their chats. Was there anything contentious about it? He replied, Oh no, it simply enlarges the powers of the board. It certainly would do that. The resulting 1909 Aborigines Protection Act, which was to come in force the following year, gave the board sweeping powers. Here's one of the clauses, quote, The board may remove from a reserve any Aborigine who is guilty of any misconduct or who, in the opinion of the board, should be earning a living away from such reserve. So, if the board considered you'd misbehaved, you'd be separated from your people. If the board considered you could work elsewhere, you'd also be separated from your people. Here's another clause. Any building erected on a reserve shall be vested in and become property of the board. Also, all cattle, horses, pigs, sheep, machinery and property thereon purchased or acquired for the benefit of Aborigines. So everything the people lived on, worked with and sought to improve did not and would not belong to them. And here's one of the clauses that led to so much more misery. Quote, The board may, by indenture, bind or cause to be bound the child of any Aborigine or the neglected child of any person apparently having any admixture of Aboriginal blood in his veins, to be apprenticed to any master, and may collect and institute proceeding for the recovery of any wages payable under such indenture, and may expend the same as the board may think fit in the interest of the child. So, children could be taken from their parents and forced to work, and then their wages could be used by the board to pay for their upkeep. How that differed from slavery is not clear to me. And after that came the clauses where the board could, on its determination of neglect, take charge of any Aboriginal person aged 14 to 21. While zealot George Ardell had much to say in the creation of this law, board member and member of the Legislative Assembly, Robert Donaldson, was publicly described as the father of the Act. But both men, of course, got much input from Robert Beardsmore. After all, he'd been in the job for a decade, and he was the collector, the collator, and the keeper of the facts and the figures. In August 1910, the Riverine Herald reported Beardsmore, quote, probably knows more about the Aborigines of Australia, the past difficulties with which the board has had to contend, and the trials of managers of stations than any other man in the state. This glowing appraisal appeared in an article about Beardsmore, Ardell and Donaldson 
visiting the Yorta Yorta people of Kamaragunja. They went to assure them that the new law was in their best interests. These Yorta Yorta people, it must be noted, had already in the late 19th century been forcibly moved from another mission. The Riverine Herald's reporter didn't note that, didn't know and didn't care. His article was pure propaganda. He told readers the visit was a, quote, huge success and a triumph of tact, diplomacy and kindly sympathy. The reporter said that the Aboriginal people had been dreading this visit because they'd been led to believe, quote, their children were to be ruthlessly removed from their parents at once and removed from them forever. But by the end of the meeting in the mission hall, everyone was relaxed and comfortable because it had all just been a big misunderstanding. Yet the new law had been laid down quite clearly. Quote, the Aborigines have been plainly told that they must labour for their own and their family support, must be sober, cleanly of life and tongue, must obey a more stringent code of rules in the future, and that rebellion must and will be put down with a firm hand. The article spoke for all Indigenous people present when it said they all took the visit and the new law with good grace and even approval. The law was fair and just, the article said, parroting one of the speakers, because, quote, Remember that nothing is demanded from you that is not demanded by the laws of our land from white people generally. That, of course, wasn't remotely true. Inspectors certainly wouldn't be assessing Beardsmore's children in Strathfield with a view to shipping them off to be indentured servants for some remote family. The Riverine Herald article went on, in that same authoritarian, evangelical tone, parroting one of the speakers lecturing the Yorta Yorta people. Quote, Do not be given to complaints. Lastly, as firstly, respect your officers, obey their instructions, and trust the board. Here's the commentary that the article provided. Quote, the Aborigines Protection Board has shouldered the white man's burden. It has proved its peculiar fitness for the heavy task by many years of faithful work performed under almost impossible conditions. The Parliament of New South Wales has at last recognised this, thanks to Mr Donaldson more than to any other single individual, by delegating to this board of happy nomenclature the fullest power and authority. And who will dare to say that this power has not been well placed? As for how well it worked, a flash forward to 1939. In protest over their ongoing violent subjugation, 200 people of Kamaragunja Mission walked off and crossed the border to live in Victoria. This was one of the first mass protests of Aboriginal people. But back to the 1910 visit. No matter the reassurances that day, Mr Donaldson had already made his intentions crystal clear when the bill was being considered by Parliament. In August 1909, he'd said, quote, There is a bill in the hand of the Chief Secretary, and I appeal that he make it an urgent one, that the Aborigines Protection Board may be vested with the power to rescue these children from what is nothing but evil, idleness, and disaster, and to give them a chance to be useful and honest members of the community. Mr. Donaldson continued, quote, when the board has more powers, it will be not slow to remove the existing evils and to establish a new system that will permanently ameliorate the conditions of these unfortunate people. The records of Aboriginal children removed from their families at this time are incomplete, but those that exist are damning. 
As found in the book Power and Dysfunction, the board recorded two removals in the seven years between 1890 and 1897. There may have been a few more, but they were vanishingly rare. From October 1897, when Zealot George Ardor was appointed, to May 1901, there were 18 removals. More, but still not that many. Then there's a gap in the records. From June 1905 to November 1906, with Ardell still on the board, there were three children removed. Then, in the first six months under the new Act, from the 2nd of June to the 15th of December 1910, there were 55 removals. But the board was just getting started. As for Beardsmore, what had he concluded after more than a decade in the role? In 1913, not long before finishing up with the Inspector General of Police and thus with the board, he testified at the South Australian Royal Commission on the Aborigines. Beardsmore was asked how the half-caste compared with the full-blood. He replied, quote, I do not think that either physically or morally the half-caste is as good a man as the full-blood. There is very good reason for that. The fathers of the half-castes are naturally the most depraved white men, and if heredity counts for anything, it must mean that those children are worse than the full-blood children. A little flash forward. In 1915, the board got the powers it had wanted. The Act was amended to be all-inclusive of Aboriginal children. Any of them could be taken at any age, at the board's discretion. This led to decades in which wholesale removals created the stolen generations. In 1914, things moved very quickly for Robert Beardsmore. In February, he was appointed as Major. In the middle of July, he was promoted to Chief Accountant for the Chief Secretary. Two weeks later, war broke out in Europe. During Robert's lifetime to this point, Australian colonial military forces had seen action in Sudan, China and South Africa. But all of these campaigns had been under direct British command. The Great War, starting on the 4th of August 1914, changed that. Though our national memory has been inscribed with a federated Australia's baptism of fire being at Gallipoli, it actually came much earlier than that in German New Guinea. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As soon as it was known that Germany and Britain were at war, Australian men began volunteering to fight in Europe. But there was a threat much closer to home. Germany had a naval fleet in the Pacific. Warships used wireless to communicate with island bases, where there were also coal depots to keep the fleet steaming. After the Australian government offered troops to fight the Kaiser, the British gratefully accepted and sent a message back on the 6th of August requesting the Antipodeans capture German wireless bases in the Marshall Islands, Nauru and New Guinea. Colonel William Holmes, the Boer War hero, kept an official expedition war diary from the 10th of August, which was when he recorded being called by the district commander. 
The entire War Diary is available online at the State Library of New South Wales. From the 10th of August entry, quote, Proceeded to barracks immediately and was informed by the Commandant that it was intended to at once organise a force consisting of one battalion of infantry and 500 blue jackets with proper complement of army medical unit to be ready for foreign service within six days. Six days. It was going to be hectic. Once Holmes accepted the command, he was told, quote, I would have practically a free hand in the selection of the officers accompanying me, with the exception of the naval unit. This force, just over a thousand soldiers and 500 sailors, would be called the Australian Naval and Military Expeditionary Force, or ANMEF. Holmes began selecting his officers immediately. Robert Beardsmore was chosen to command the A Infantry Company. Holmes also gave important roles to his son and to his son-in-law. Both were officers of appropriate rank, but this appearance of nepotism would cause embarrassment. So too would allegations against Holmes and almost all the men he appointed to his command. This included Robert Beardsmore. But all of that lay in the future. For the moment, heads were held high at the prospect of being the first to fight the Kaiser's men. Anmef paraded at the agricultural showground. Newspaper photos showed Colonel Holmes doing a final inspection, attended by Lieutenant Colonel Russell Watson, his infantry battalion commander, and by Major Beardsmore. Then the men marched through the city to the sounds of brass bands. Big crowds cheered them on. The image we'd come to associate with Anzac was taking shape this day. The Sun said, quote, Their physique is something to be proud of. You could search the armies of all nations and not find a sturdier, stronger body of men. Then, at midday on the 19th of August, the bulk of this force sailed from Sydney on the P&O steamer Berrimer, which had been requisitioned for war use. The naval convoy north was to include other transports, the warship HMAS Sydney and Australia's two new submarines, AE-1 and AE-2. After stopping at Brisbane for additional training, ANMEF sailed on to New Guinea, arriving on the 4th of September at Port Moresby. A demand for the acting German governor to surrender went unmet. So, after drilling and trying to acclimate to the tropics, most of the force made for Blanche Bay in New Britain. Early on the 11th of September 1914, an advanced naval party went ashore to take a wireless station believed to be at Bitterpaka, some five miles inland and south from the coastal town of Kabakol. These scouts captured three German and 20 Melanesian soldiers, and the enemy seized maps gave the Australians a better idea of the terrain. Around 9.30am, reinforcements landed, two naval companies and a machine gun section but the advance party had pressed on before they arrived. Then came the ambush. Able seaman Billy Williams was mortally wounded by sniper fire, the first Australian under Australian command to be killed in action in the Great War. Medical officer Captain Brian Pockley was the next to be fatally shot. Four more Australians were KIA that day. A second larger force, four infantry companies, a machine gun section and a field gun were landed at 3pm. Colonel Holmes's diary recorded the fatalities, the taking of prisoners, and then the happy news that overnight the Germans had surrendered and the wireless base was captured. When the smoke cleared at Bitterpaka, four more Australians had been wounded, 
while one German officer and 30 Melanesian soldiers had been killed in the fighting. Some 19 German and 56 local troops had been captured. Colonel Holmes was to say it was, quote, a pretty good scrap. On the 12th of September, Beardsmore's A Company, along with three other infantry companies, was sent to take Rubal. Given what had happened the day before, this was a bit nerve-wracking. As one of Beardsmore's soldiers, a private Dunn, would soon tell the Sunday Times, quote, We had a screen out, and the Major was taking no chances. He did not know what was in front of him. Beardsmore ordered night patrols, and everyone was on edge. Private Dunn continued, I was on a detached post and noticed something moving along the side of the road. I could see it was a man in plain clothes. When he came right opposite me, I jumped out and with my bayonet just a few inches from his chest, commanded him to halt. He said something to me in German, which I did not understand. The bayonet language is more universal than any other I know of. You can't possibly mistake its meaning. With this bayonet communication established, Private Dunn took the German prisoner. Via a translator, the man claimed to be a German neutral subject. He was taken behind the lines, but Private Dunn noticed he was walking with a military bearing. Then suddenly, the German turned and said in remarkably good English, I think it would be too risky for you to come any further. The native police are about here and they might fire on you. Private Dunn marched him back to Beardsmore, who ordered the man placed under arrest. In his interview with the Sunday Times, Private Dunn claimed that this was the first enemy soldier captured by Australian forces in the Great War. That wasn't true. Holmes's diary makes it quite clear that soldiers had been captured the day before. But Private Dunn may have laid claim to another, more tragic first. Later that night, locals approached his post. Private Dunn would be quoted in the Sunday Times saying, They made off as soon as they saw us, and I fired. One of the natives yelled and continued running. Hours afterwards, we found him dying in the bush. We made his last moments as easy for him as we could. Private Dunn's description makes it seem that this man was a frightened civilian. Colonel Holmes's diary noted him as a native police officer. On the 17th of September, Holmes offered the terms of capitulation to Germany's acting governor. While it was clear the Australians would be victorious, by then they had also suffered their darkest day to date. Submarine AE-1 had gone off to patrol the coast and had not returned. All 35 men were feared lost. When the wreckage of the vessel was found more than a century later, it had been concluded a flooding accident during diving had caused an explosion that killed all hands. Despite this tragedy, Australia had won in New Guinea. The Federated Australia had its first military victory. Now the invasion was to become an occupation. But on that day, 17th of September, an unidentified Australian soldier recorded in his war diary, quote, Little looting other than food. Bayonets occasionally run into pigs and chickens when opportune moment occurs. This seemed perfectly understandable given men wanted to supplement their rations with fresh food. This soldier's words were published in the Daily Telegraph a few weeks later. What then seemed pretty innocuous was actually the first public hint of a scandal that would throw a shadow over Australia's first military victory. By this time, Colonel Holmes knew that such activities were taking place. And on that same day, the 17th of September, a court-martial was convened to deal with a soldier named Private Samuel Hawkes. 
Robert Beardsmore was made president of this court-martial. This was the role of judge. Two other officers would also weigh evidence, while another officer acted as prosecutor. Private Hawkes was found guilty and got a month's hard labour in the field. By the 24th of September, all Germans in New Guinea had surrendered. Australia's morale was also to receive a boost when, on the 13th of October, the German ship Comet was captured intact in a small harbour 150 miles northwest of Rabaul. Colonel Holmes wrote, quote, She was taken unawares and offered no resistance. But on board, at least one Australian officer, Colonel John Patton, Holmes's 2IC of the regimental staff, helped himself to what he supposedly saw as souvenirs of war. Sounds minor, but this was a criminal act. Colonel Holmes's diary includes the orders that he gave during this period that said all looting would be severely punished. But Colonel Patton wasn't charged. From October, the court-martial under Robert Beardsmore was busy with a variety of cases. These offences included drunkenness, desertion, forgery and stealing. The accused men were rank and file. Some were acquitted, others found guilty. Those convicted were awarded punishments that ranged from a couple of weeks without pay to three months with hard labour and dishonourable discharge from the army. The most serious cases coming before the court at this time were of soldiers who'd broken into and stolen from a Chinese opium den and another soldier who'd robbed German priests at gunpoint. Two of the Chinatown bandits would prove a thorn in the side of the Australian military in the months to come. One was William Penny. His court-martial record shows that he pleaded guilty. In a verbal statement, he said, quote, For two months since we landed here, at the busiest time, I served as a corporal for the Provost Marshal gratuitously, and I begged the court for military punishment. If I could be trusted again for the purpose of going to Europe, I should like to rejoin. For future reference, the Provost Marshal William Penny described himself as serving gratuitously was Captain Lionel Ravenscroft. William Penny had to defend himself in the court-martial. He had two character witnesses. One of his co-accused, Thomas Wilson, gave evidence against him. For being the main culprit who'd stolen money from the Chinese opium den, Robert Beardsmore punished William Penny with four years in prison with hard labour and also ordered he be dishonourably discharged. William Penny's court-martial file at the National Archives of Australia contains his written plea to Beardsmore after this harsh sentence. He said, which a character witness had backed up, that he was the sole provider for his wife and five children, and he had another baby on the way. William Penny said he'd served in the Boer War and had been wounded twice. His family was in poverty, and this worried him a lot. On the day of the offence, he said he'd been drunk and brooding. When he saw the chance to snatch the money from the Chinese man, he'd stupidly taken it. This plea fell on deaf ears. Meanwhile, his accomplice, Thomas Wilson, got three years behind bars. The other Chinatown robbers and the man who'd held up the German priests also got three years apiece. These sentences were confirmed by Lieutenant Colonel Russell Watson who was acting as the equivalent of the Attorney General in New Guinea. We'll hear much more about William Penny and Thomas Wilson soon. In the meantime, in December 1914, another soldier's letter home caused a brouhaha over what was going on in New Guinea. 
A private named B. Campbell had mentioned to his mother that he and a mate had gone to a garrison store and each bought a pair of pyjamas. What they found in the pockets were notes from Sydney Red Cross ladies who'd made these garments, wishing whoever got them good luck in the war. At this time, Australian newspapers were filled with pleas for volunteer women to make urgently needed clothes for soldiers. The Red Cross would see that they were delivered to the troops. It seemed possible that these goods in New Guinea had been misappropriated and sold for a profit to the very soldiers who were supposed to be receiving them as gifts. This emerging scandal was a morale sapper for everyone. How had it happened? The matter was raised in Parliament. Jens Jensen, Assistant Minister for Defence in Andrew Fisher's Labour government, said he'd make inquiries. In the second week of January 1915, Colonel Holmes and about 270 men left Rubal for Sydney aboard the ship Easton. At this time, Robert Beardsmore was appointed to command the garrison troops in Rubal. The new commander and administrator in New Guinea was Colonel Samuel Petherbridge. The official history of Australia in the war of 1914-1918, which downplays much of what we're about to hear, says this of Colonel Petherbridge taking over, quote, for some time allegations had been made that property had been taken from official bungalows and private residents occupied as quarters by the troops. In particular, the administrator had heard a rumour that property belonging to the government or to the civilian inhabitants of the territory had been carried off by some of the troops who had embarked in the eastern on January 9th. Colonel Petherbridge telegraphed the Defence Department to say they ought to search this ship when it arrived in Sydney. And to stop what he suspected had happened from happening again, he ordered that henceforth the luggage of all soldiers departing from Rubal would be liable to search. He later wrote in a report to the Defence Department, quote, When the order was issued, I was threatened with mutiny, some of the officers considering that their personal honour was impugned. It didn't come to mutiny. Yet, when subsequent ships sailed, Colonel Petherbridge was clearly not confident that they'd been properly searched, and he again telegraphed Sydney. As the official history states, quote, Action appears to have been taken accordingly in Australia, resulting in the retention by the authorities of certain packages. Major Beardsmore and the bulk of the ANMEF forces returned to Sydney in mid-February 1915. At this time, Federal Parliament was still in Melbourne. Assistant Defence Minister Mr Jensen quietly took action to investigate allegations of looting. Mr Jensen's emissary to Sydney would be John Laheef, Senior Ordnance Clerk for the Commonwealth Defence Department. Mr Laheef had joined the Victorian military as a civilian clerk in 1884. By 1915, he'd been with the Federal Defence Department for at least 10 years. It's difficult to believe he went to Sydney hoping to find evidence of corruption. But in Sydney, he very quickly recovered some of the loot and found witnesses who'd give sworn statements that it had been Australian Army officers who'd organised the wholesale ransacking of New Guinea. Based on this confidential report back to the Defence Department, a court of inquiry was set up and nothing happened. For two months, everything remained secret. Then, three days before the Anzacs landed at Gallipoli, came the bombshell. On the 22nd of April, in the Federal House of Representatives, Labor backbencher Frank Anstey made shocking claims that put Australia's victory in the Pacific in a shameful shadow. 
Those five soldiers who'd been sentenced to long prison terms should be released, he said, pending an independent inquiry. That's because they were merely scapegoats, convicted and condemned by officers who were guilty of far worse. Now, Frank Anstey had his own agenda, and we'll get into that. But first remember, he was a Labour Member of Parliament demanding answers from Prime Minister Andrew Fisher's Labour government. Anstey said, quote, It is a well-known and admitted fact that in Rabol, rapine, plunder and looting were not the privilege of the rank and file, but the perquisites of the officers of the expedition, although these have strenuously denied the facts and sought to cover up the proceedings. Anstey went on, quote, the whole force of authority has been used to cloak the facts from public gaze. When the authorities are presented with admissions of guilt by the officers, and when stolen property is put before them, they still continue to inquire. Anstey continued, Ship after ship left Rabol, their manifest being absolute testimony to the looting that had taken place. This loot was the property of the officers. They alone were given the privilege of looting. No common soldier participated in the looting in any way. The most the men did was touch a Chinaman and to take a bottle of wine. The officers, on the other hand, looted everything on which they could lay their hands. Anstey pointed out that the five soldiers in Rabal had been tried, convicted and sentenced within a day or so of being caught. But the official court of inquiry in Sydney into officers' actions had been going for two months without a single trial being held. Anstey claimed that Colonel Holmes had been at the head of a criminal conspiracy staffed by the tribe of family that he took with him, and that included his son and his son-in-law. Even more shamefully, Anstey said, at least one officer had been accused of the attempted rape of a Melanesian woman. So what did Anstey have to back up these startling accusations? Well, he'd seen the secret reports made by Mr. Lahif. William Penny, Thomas Wilson and two other convicted soldiers who were now serving their long sentences in Goulburn Jail had made sworn statements to the inquiry. What was every bit as shocking as Anstey's allegations was that they were kind of confirmed in Parliament by Assistant Defence Minister Mr Jensen. He said the evidence could lead to the trial of several officers. Mr Jensen promised, quote, No class distinction would be shown. If the officers were guilty, they'd pay the price. Prime Minister Andrew Fisher said if Anstey's statements were correct, then every court-martial at Rabaul would have to be reviewed. But Prime Minister Fisher added, as paraphrased in The Australian Worker, quote, he thought it would be impossible to have a court so corrupt as had been suggested. Liberal opposition leader and previous Prime Minister Joseph Cook was in a dilly of a pickle. Here was Labour attacking itself. He chose the safest path, saying of Colonel Holmes' high character, quote, it was the action of skunks to condemn a man without evidence in support. The leftist newspaper Labour Call covered the accusations in detail under the headline, Buccaneers of Rabal. It reminded readers that Australians had recently been outraged by reports of German soldiers committing atrocities and looting in Belgium. Now our officers were accused of something similar. Labour Call doubted that justice would be done. Quote, We all know there is one law for the rich and another for the poor, 
As we also know, there is a law for officers as well as the soldiers. It demanded that, quote, the soilers of Australia's name must be brought to justice and made an example of. Robert Beardsmore was not named in any newspaper as having been president of the court-martial proceedings, nor was he named in Parliament, yet. Beardsmore was now back in Sydney and again working in the Chief Secretary's department. He was surely keeping an eye on these accusations and the massive amount of newspaper coverage they were getting. Of course, leftist newspapers like Australian Worker and Labor Call had plenty of skin in the game. They'd been against the war as an instrument of capitalism. And Frank Anstey was also anti-war, for reasons other than just pacifism. That year, 1915, he published The Kingdom of Shylock. This was an anti-Semitic tract subtitled The War Loan and the War Tax. In it, Anstey blamed the war on the Jews and what he called the money power in London. His book included lines such as, quote, This war makes the living worker a slave and fills the treasury of Shylock to overflowing. Anstey's anti-Semitic thinking would be shared by his Labour fellow travellers, and this would include Jack Lang and Jock Garden. So Anstey definitely had an agenda. Even so, Two weeks after he put the issue in the spotlight, the federal government did a backflip on the sentences of the five soldiers. After initially saying that military justice had to be respected, three of the men were released from jail. Those allowed to walk free included Thomas Wilson, who'd originally been sentenced to three years. The most serious offender, William Penny, had his time reduced from four years to one year. There doesn't seem to be any other way to interpret this other than as a serious rebuke by a Labour federal government to Robert Beardsmore's judgment. But why had these men been shown such leniency? Was it only because Beardsmore's sentencing had been so harsh? On the 16th of May, the Sun said that the Defence Minister, Senator George Pearce, had already wanted to review the sentences even before Anstey had made an issue of them. And this is extremely hard to believe. The men's punishments had been handed down in October and November the previous year. It was only after Anstey made them public that they were suddenly reviewed and reduced. In the same article, The Sun said this looting scandal had been the only thing anyone had been talking about recently. Thank goodness then for the glorious news that had changed that. The Anzacs fight at Gallipoli, which was then yet to be revealed as a disastrous stalemate. Now, during this period, Private Campbell, who'd made those pyjama allegations, was involved in a public to-and-fro with Colonel Holmes in the pages of The Sun. Holmes had claimed that Campbell had written a letter to him and had sent a duplicate to The Sun, in which he repudiated his story about buying the pyjamas from a military store. In the letter, Campbell had supposedly said it had been a private individual who'd sold the garments to him and to his mate. Ergo, this so-called confession meant there was no official corruption. The big problem with this was that Private Campbell reaffirmed his original story to the Sun. Further, he denied writing any subsequent confession and he had no idea what letter Holmes was talking about. The Sun also reported it hadn't received any letter. It was all very strange. But this scandal was only going to get worse and more mysterious. 
In mid-May, after Anstey's agitations had forced promises from the Prime Minister, court-martial proceedings were held in Sydney at Victoria Barracks. Reporters were given admittance. This was an open court, what Anstey had wanted. The court-martial included hearing the matter of Private Campbell and the pyjamas. The president of the court-martial was Colonel George Leonard Lee, a Boer War veteran. Colonel Holmes testified that he had had in his possession Private Campbell's so-called confession letter. Holmes said he'd sent that letter on to the Minister of Defence, though the Minister of Defence would later say he hadn't received it. The President of the Court Martial, Colonel Lee, didn't demand that the letter be produced. Instead, he accepted evidence that Private Campbell was of weak character and shouldn't be believed. So, on Colonel Holmes's word, with Private Campbell still under oath denying he'd written any such confession, Private Campbell was convicted of making a false statement. The most senior officers to face court-martial were Colonel Holmes's Regimental 2IC, Lieutenant Colonel John Patton, and that Provost Marshal, Captain Lionel Ravenscroft. Lieutenant Colonel Patton had nicked some cutlery from the captured German ship Comet. Captain Ravenscroft had taken a typewriter, a chronometer and camera from private homes in New Guinea. Patton was found not guilty, the court accepting there had been no felonious intent and he thought he was entitled to trivial war souvenirs. Ravenscroft, whose charges were more serious, was the last officer to face the court-martial in mid-May. In a general response under cross-examination, Ravenscroft said as Provost Marshal... It had been part of his job to enter the abandoned residences of German nationals and take their property into safekeeping. It had all been above board. The court only proceeded with the charges relating to the camera. Ravenscroft pleaded not guilty. Under cross-examination, though, he admitted he'd previously been dismissed by court-martial from the Royal Scots for embezzlement, and that he'd not admitted this when he got his Australian military commission. But this court-martial found Ravenscroft not guilty. One newspaper called this a howling farce, and on the 27th of May in Parliament, Frank Anstey demanded a new investigation. Clearly quite furious, Anstey entered into the record how this scandal had evolved. He read from and summarised the reports that Mr Lahif had made when he got to Sydney to do the investigation on behalf of the Department of Defence. Quote, Within four hours of his arrival in Sydney, he obtained the evidence and got the loot into his possession. Lest the military chief should interfere, he took it to the police station and put it under the charge of the Government of New South Wales. He seized the forged receipts in many cases. Anstey continued, When he had done that, and they found that he was in Sydney, the military chiefs declared themselves outraged by this interference with their work. They asked, were not they the men to maintain the honour of the army and to see justice done? They communicated with the minister and said, we are carrying out this work. We are prepared to make a proper investigation. Why should we not be permitted to do so? Anstey continued, It is to their undying infamy that, though for three months they had ample opportunity... They never made a step until they knew that the senior ordnance officer was in Sydney and had the thieves' property in his clutches. Anstey said it was only then that the officers asked the Department of Defence that Mr Lahif assist them. Once these investigations had begun, sworn statements were taken from the convicted men in Goulburn Jail. 
Mr Lahif had reported to the Defence Minister on the 14th of March, quote, There is no doubt that looting has taken place on a large scale from the top downwards, and if it were not for the men in jail, there would be no question of loot at all. This report, and the imprisoned men's sworn statements, along with continuing inaction, was what had led Anstey to go public a month later. Citing Mr Lahif's report, Anstey gave Parliament a detailed account of the loot that had made it to Australia. Quote, The great bulk of the loot came by the troopship Berrimah and was placed aboard and taken away under the direction of military and naval officers. The transport Eastern was also used for a similar purpose. These ships, being under military and naval control, were not subject to customs inspection. Nine cases of loot came by the Matunga on the 28th of January and were reshipped to Newcastle. Newcastle was where Colonel John Patton lived and had his businesses. Even his otherwise glowing profile at the Australian Dictionary of Biography still contains this, quote, He may also have used his warehouse facilities at Newcastle to store goods for other members. In Parliament, Frank Anstey said that the just-acquitted Ravenscroft had been guilty of far more serious offences than nicking a camera, chronometer and typewriter. Quote, On the 22nd of February, five cases of loot were shipped on the Matunga at Rubal for Captain Ravenscroft. Anstey said that even after the officers had left New Guinea, the stuff kept coming, shipped by agents. Quote, the Moresby and Marcina were also used for the transport of loot. Amongst the looted goods were bedsteads, motorboats, gramophones, table linen, typewriters, chronometers, cameras, silverware, children's soup plates, chinaware, saucepans, Japaneseware, glassware, jugs, coffee pots, kettles, lamps, etc., etc. Mr. Lahif had reported that as late as the 14th of March, the loot was still arriving in Sydney, though it had started to tail off. Officers, Mr. Lahif claimed, had doctored receipts from non-existent German nationals to make it look like they'd bought this stuff. As Frank Anstey said of Mr. Lahif, quote, He said that forgery was added to robbery and reported that he held receipts produced to the customs authorities which he could prove to be forgeries. He urged that the Board of Inquiry should take no notice of receipts produced before them until these had been proved to be genuine. A cargo came by the Marcina for Captain Fry, but Captain Fry did not appear before the court-martial. Captain Fry had been third in command under Beardsmore in A Company. Anstey also brought up the fact that Private Campbell's so-called confession hadn't been produced, even though Colonel Holmes said he'd sent it to the Minister of Defence. There was more, much more, including Anstey accusing Colonel Holmes of orchestrating wholesale looting and of him embarrassingly bringing up Colonel Lee's own alleged history of financial misappropriation. The Hansard makes for very interesting reading, both for Anstey's allegations and the government's rebuttals. Assistant Defence Minister Mr Jensen, in response, said reasonably enough that he'd started investigating in February before Anstey had raised the matter. Yet the results, no action taken for months and then a series of acquittals, didn't reflect well on anyone in government. The combined weight of this was enough for Prime Minister Andrew Fisher to say that the recent Sydney court-martial proceedings maybe hadn't been satisfactory and should be investigated. Captain Lionel Ravenscroft had been the last to be acquitted, 
and his case seemed the most egregious, particularly as he'd admitted previous embezzlement. Attorney General Billy Hughes investigated, overturned the verdict, and Ravenscroft was booted out of the army. Was this actually justice, or the government trying to make it look like justice had been done? Either way, the fire of this scandal was not quite extinguished. Frank Anstey's campaign to hold his government to account yielded some startling revelations on the 4th of June. Assistant Defence Minister Mr Jensen read into Parliament the statutory declaration made by Lieutenant Colonel Russell Watson. Remember, he was Colonel Holmes's regimental 2IC in New Guinea, and he'd also been one of the officers sitting at the Sydney court-martial. In this declaration, made on the 1st of June, Watson had read from what he said was a true copy of Private Campbell's confession. So, when Mr Jensen read this into Parliament, he was reading what another officer had read as a sworn statement from Campbell's still-missing letter. According to Watson's stat deck, Private Campbell had supposedly written his letter on the 21st of December while still in New Guinea. He'd addressed it to The Sun, denying the pyjamas had been bought in a garrison store as the paper had previously published under his name. In this confession letter, Private Campbell said he'd bought them from a private individual, etc., just as Colonel Holmes had claimed. If he'd written this second letter, why had The Sun never received it? Perhaps it had been intercepted by military censors. But if that was the case, and this letter had been floating around for six months, able to be read by Lieutenant Colonel Russell Watson just days ago, then why not just produce it in Parliament? But Assistant Defence Minister Mr Jensen's attempts to reclaim officers' honour took an even more jaw-dropping turn when, to clear another officer's name, he read a summary of the charges made against him. In Hansard, what you're about to hear is noted as confidential. I'm assuming that meant they couldn't be reported under the recent War Powers Precaution Act. In any event, they did not and would not appear in any newspaper. To this day, they're only found in Hansard. The allegations were against Major Robert Henry Beardsmore. They were of attempted rape, looting, drunkenness and dereliction of duty. The most serious attempted rape had been alleged on the 6th of March in a statement under oath that had been made by convicted soldier William Penny. He said, quote, I remember seeing Major Beardsmore at Rubal chasing a black woman, having his person exposed. A number of men of his company were present and also saw him. Mr Jensen told the Parliament that the Court of Inquiry had been instructed to investigate this matter and find the names of these other supposed witnesses. The Comptroller General of Prisons had also obtained another statement from William Penny. He said, quote, Private Thomas Wilson is the only person I know by name who saw Major Beardsmore exposed. There are others who I could recognise. Wilson would know the names of others belonging to A Company and on parade at this time. Private Thomas Wilson had also given a statement. In this, he said it had been another A Company officer, Colonel Sergeant Gerald Mack, Beardsmore's fourth in command in A Company, who'd exposed himself at Government House in Rabaul as he chased a black woman, quote, for the purpose of having connection with her. Wilson had added, quote, I did not see Major Beardsmore expose himself, 
but he said he couldn't say what had happened after he left. He noted, quote, But prior to leaving, the men had found drink in the house, and a number of them stayed for a couple of days, Major Beardsmore with them while the drink lasted. Wilson's statement wasn't corroborative of the most serious charge, but it also insinuated that bad stuff was going on and the Major had been loafing, looting and drinking. If what Thomas Wilson alleged was correct, then Major Beardsmore also hadn't reported or reprimanded Colonel Sergeant Gerald Mack right at the time that he was handing down very harsh sentences for far lesser offences. Having read these charges into Parliament, Mr Jensen then said that Major Beardsmore had denied all of the allegations under oath. What Mr Jensen revealed next was perhaps the most extraordinary moment of an extraordinary day. Both William Penny and Thomas Wilson now denied the truth of their original statements. What they said had happened, they now said had not happened. Mr Jensen told Parliament, quote, In view of the above, it appears clear that Penny's statements, on oath and otherwise, are utterly unreliable, and that he has laid himself open to a charge of criminal libel, if not perjury. And that made perfect sense. William Penny had made an utterly despicable accusation against Major Beardsmore on the 6th of March 1915. So why wasn't he prosecuted? Why instead, two months later, did he have three years cut from his sentence? Thomas Wilson had also made outrageous allegations against Beardsmore, and he'd been allowed to walk free. Why? Had they been induced to change their statements in return for leniency? Or had they been lying all along? I don't know. And in fairness to Robert Beardsmore, William Penny hardly had a clean record. Yes, he'd served in the Boer War, but back in 1907, he'd also served six months for breaking, stealing, forging and uttering. As a little flash forward, in 1916, after having done his year and being discharged, William Penny was allowed to re-enlist, as he'd requested at his court-martial. In March 1917 in England, he was court-martialed again for trying to defraud a paymaster. This time, he served three months. Then, he was off to the Western Front, where he was gassed. William Penny survived, returned to Sydney, and was discharged as medically unfit. He got a job as a caretaker, and in 1921, was convicted of stealing £12 worth of goods from his boss, and got 10 weeks in jail. In mid-1925, he deserted the wife and family he'd supposedly robbed an opium den to support. William Penny had certainly had reason to hate Major Beardsmore. So maybe he had lied, confessed under pressure, and caught a lucky break when the government wanted the controversy to just go away. If they had charged him with perjury, then the allegations against Robert Beardsmore might have made the newspapers. And no one wanted a scandal like that. I don't know what really happened. But what I think is fair to say is that Robert Beardsmore must have been absolutely appalled to have this allegation made against him in court and then aired in Parliament. I think it's reasonable to assume that Beardsmore would have been absolutely appalled at Frank Anstey leading this campaign against Australia's officer class by the federal Labor government overturning the sentences he'd handed down and by the leftist press fanning the flames and claiming the whole thing was a cover-up that stunk from top to bottom. 
Just a week after his name was linked in Parliament with rape, robbery, looting and loafing, Robert's daughter Ethel died at the age of 11. The official war history and various books about the New Guinea mission go into very little detail about the looting scandal. Typically, they're written off as a newspaper beat-up that unfairly cast a pall over what should have been nothing other than a glorious military victory. While Frank Anstey did have an agenda, it should be remembered he was informed by the report of that senior ordnance officer, Mr. Lahif. I've found nothing in the record to sully this man's reputation. In fairness, it has to be noted that the main players in this scandal went on to serve with distinction. Colonel Holmes was a commander at Gallipoli. He was promoted to general and in France in 1916-1917, as he had in the Dardanelles, he led from the front. General Holmes was killed by a German shell in France in July 1917. He's commemorated by General Holmes Drive, which serves Sydney Airport. Colonel John Patton, meanwhile, was a commander at Gallipoli and then, in November 1916, was wounded by a sniper in France. He returned to the Western Front and led the 6th Brigade in attacks at Passchendaele and other battlefields. Robert Beardsmore was lucky in the sense that his name wasn't dragged through the papers with the most serious of the allegations that came out of the scandal. He continued to work as Chief Accountant to the Chief Secretary. In August 1915, Beardsmore volunteered for the AIF for active service, and he was given command of the 30th Battalion's A Company. At least 162 of the 222 men who formed up A Company to begin with were former members of the Navy. Many had served in New Guinea alongside Beardsmore. These ex-sailors as infantry led to an incident that would be recounted with amusement in the papers. While training at Liverpool one morning, the duty orderly sergeant, maintaining naval tradition, reported of the mustard to Beardsmore, quote, 220 men aboard, sir, five ashore, four adrift, and two in the bay. Beardsmore and his men sailed on the 9th of November on the Beltana, and they were at Suez a month later. After training, they embarked for Europe in mid-June, and by the 10th of July, they were on the front lines in the Battle of the Somme. They came under German bombardment and they suffered some losses. But the worst lay ahead at Fromel just over a week later. While Robert Beardsmore had been at the first Australian combat action in New Guinea, now he was to be in the thick of the first major Australian battle on the Western Front. Fromel was initially intended to draw German forces away from the Somme offensive. What it turned out to be was the worst military disaster in Australian history. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to part A of The First Dismissal, The Public Servant Who Brought Down the Premier. The last instalment will be with you very soon. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. 
That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 